This evening, would you turn with me, please, to Romans and chapter 12, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, the Roman church, the Roman Christians, and chapter 12. And this evening we will read verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18 of Romans 12, where we read these words. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Well, in many ways, these last few verses are the most important verses for us to consider and the most challenging of the whole chapter. So far, the Apostle Paul, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been laying down principles that we are to live by as Christians. This chapter is all about the Christian life, living the Christian life. In the first two verses of the chapter, he began with a great sweeping statement that a Christian is someone who has been uh, the recipient of great mercy from God. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. And of course, when he says that, he expects us to know exactly what he means. After all, he has spent 11 chapters telling us about the great mercy of God towards us, the way in which God treats us not as our sins deserve, but he treats us uh, through grace as his children and draws us into his family through adoption, justifies us uh, from our sins through the uh, death of our Lord Jesus and through faith in him. We've received great mercy from God and we must never forget that. It is the great motivation, isn't it, for Christian living? Isn't that the great thing? Our God is not a God who forces us to live in any particular way. He's not a God who will demand things of us without great reason. And surely the great reason is this. He's shown us great mercy. And those who have received great mercy should be those that are most thankful and therefore live lives for the praise of God. So we are to live the lives of worship uh, to God. Which means we don't conform to the world's way of thinking. That's the great message of this chapter, isn't it? We don't live the way the world lives. And that means that we don't think the way that the world thinks. We don't think that way and therefore we don't behave that way. A Christian will be different. A Christian will live a different life because we've received great mercy that causes us to think differently and by the continual transformation of our minds, we will then live lives where we are able to approve the will of God and approve that it is good and it is pleasing and it is perfect. Then in verses 3 to 8, uh, we are told that we must no longer think of ourselves uh, as individuals. Now that's difficult for us because we live in an individualistic society, don't we? And this is one of the cultural ways in which we must think differently. We live in a culture that has increasingly become individualistic. Uh, even in our lifetimes, we can see that, that this has changed. Community and family have now become fragmented to such an extent that the individual is the most important person in society. 
So whereas at one time you would have a family, an extended family, perhaps living in a, an area together, supporting one another, identifying one another, and so on, um, that's no longer the case, generally speaking. People are dispersed everywhere. There's been necessity for that, but there's also been opportunity, hasn't there? Because as transport has improved, and as money has become more readily available, people have travelled, and that means that people are able to live their own lives and that in increasingly means an individualistic society. And then there's a message that comes across all the time, that you are important, and that you have certain rights, and that people must respect you. And there's this individualism, isn't there? But we are not to think of ourselves as individuals. Now that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? But that is what it says here. We are no longer to think of ourselves as individuals. Instead, we are to think of ourselves as members one of another. Of course, he's speaking of Christians, isn't he? He's speaking of the church here. But you see that quite clearly, that we are to not only think of ourselves as being members of one body, but we are also to recognize that each member belongs to all the others. Now, how transforming is that? How radical is that? That comes in verse 5 in case you missed it. So in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. That is a foundational thought of Paul's teaching, the Bible's teaching, God's pattern for the church. So no individualism then, rather community, collaboration, using and respecting our God-given gifts. Then in verses 9 to 13, he tells us that love must be the dominating principle of all that we do. We must always act in love. Love must infuse everything. And uh, we see that in various ways described in those verses. When it comes to verse 14, there is a change. Instead of looking at the church, he broadens his, his view. And of course, we don't just live in church. We, we live in, in society, in community with others. So how are we to live? And particularly, how are we to react because these verses, 14 to 16, are particularly about our reactions in different situations. Again, the Christian is to be different in this reaction and thoughtful about the way that we react. So up until now, the, the, the Apostle has been laying down these wonderful, clear principles for us to follow. But as we all know, principles are one thing, practice is quite another. I'm quite certain that the Wright brothers did an awful lot of study on the principles of manned flight. I'm sure that they understood an awful lot about the physics of getting an aircraft off the ground and into the air. I'm certain that those principles that they had observed and worked out and no doubt done calculations and no doubt they had experimented, I'm sure that all of those principles were very clearly embedded in their thinking. But principles are one thing. 
Practice is another. The day had to come when they decided to put their principles into practice and entrust themselves to a machine that they had built and trusted it would get off the ground. Principles of flight are one thing, but the practice is another. As many people know who are absolutely terrified of flying, they can be convinced that an aircraft can quite happily get off the ground. They can be convinced of the thrust and the elevation and everything else that's necessary to get it off the ground. But entrusting yourself to that aircraft for many people is a terrifying prospect. Practice must always follow principles. Sometimes principles can seem dry and lifeless as well, can't they? Until we put them in a practical setting and we give examples of how they can be applied. The great example of principles and practice is surely in the Bible. We have in the Old Testament what we call the Ten Commandments, what the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. What are these? Well, surely they are. Uh, there are many things, of course, many ways of looking at Ten Commandments, but they are principles of conduct. They are principles that we are to live by as Christians. We know, of course, that we cannot be saved by observing the Ten Commandments, but we should also know that they are there in order to be the pattern for life for the Christian. Once we have come to know our God, once we have been converted, we then need to live our lives practically. And those are the principles that we are to live by. And so we find that in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments are there, quite clear statements in Exodus chapter 20. But we must read on, mustn't we? We read on from Exodus 20, and we find Exodus 21, 22, and 23. And these chapters are all practical examples or illustrations of the law, the principles being put into practice. So we know, don't we, that one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not murder. But this has to be worked out, doesn't it, in practice. What does it mean? Well, Exodus 21 and verse 12. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. But clearly, you see, this principle, you shall not murder, has to be worked out in practice. And there we have the difference between murder and manslaughter. The deliberate killing and the, the unintentional killing. And, and we find this in other places. We find that one of the principles is you shall not steal. But then we come into chapter 22 for a practical example. Chapter 22, verse 6. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing corn or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. Now you see, there's the, 
there is the principle, the commandment being worked out in a very real situation. Theft is more than just taking something, isn't it? It can also be destroying something. And if a field has been destroyed by fire, the person who started that fire is responsible. And these principles are all being worked out. So when we come to Romans and chapter 12, we find that the apostle lays all these principles down and then it comes to practice. And they're very, in a very real sense in which verses 17 and 18 and 19 to the end are these practical illustrations of what it means to live as a Christian. And in every point, we always see that Christian living is demanding. It requires determination and thoughtfulness and much grace. It is not a natural way of living. Someone might say, well, you know, the trouble with Christians is that they're all soft. They're all just soft, aren't they? They're weak. If you're going to be a Christian, then you're going to end up being a weak person and a soft person. You're going to be walked over if you're a Christian. But our reply to that is absolutely not. The Christian life requires enormous determination. It is demanding. It requires thoughtfulness and care. It is certainly not for the faint-hearted. So what do we find here in these verses, verses 17 and 18? First of all, we are told that we are never to pay back evil for evil. We are never to pay back evil for evil. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. You see how, how embracing that is. Anyone, at any time, whoever it is, you don't pay back evil when you receive evil. Now that's a practical illustration of what verse 14 said. In fact, it's, it's sort of the reverse side of the coin, isn't it? Verse 14 said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But here in verse 17, we have the sort of flip side of that. What does that mean? Well, if you're going to bless someone who, who curses you, then you must make sure that you don't repay like for like. You don't repay evil for evil. Now, the instinct to repay evil for evil is bred into our sinful hearts. If you ever think that sin is not something that we're born with, that somehow sin is something that is, is forced upon us by the culture and our upbringing and so on, if you don't believe that the, the human heart is sinful from birth, then all you have to do is to observe even very, very young children. Brother hits brother and immediately receives a cuff back. There's a nasty remark made by a girl in the playground. And immediately a quick and cutting retort is issued. It's sort of inbred into us that this is, this is what we do. We pay back as good as we get. Revenge and vengeance, when we get older, are not like when we're younger. Oh no, sometimes revenge, sometimes vengeance can be very calculated and long-lasting. People can harbour a hurt for many, many years. 
and never forget a wrong. And in time, they find that opportunity to repay in full the way that they've been treated perhaps years before. And we're being told here it is not what a Christian does. Now some people come to this verse and they say, well, this is clearly not what the Old Testament says. They will go to the Old Testament and they will say, well, I'm going to live by the principle of the Old Testament. You know what it says in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth, or if you want to say it, a tooth for a tooth. And that, that is there in the Bible, isn't it? Yes, it is there. Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. Again, it's part of that case law. It's part of the outworking of the Ten Commandments. It is there in that same chapter that we read from, Exodus 21, 23 to 25. But we need to understand that what we have there is the principle of justice for the civil magistrates, for the courts of law. And it's absolutely right, isn't it? And we demand justice like that in the courts of law. But here in the New Testament, and indeed in the Old Testament too, there is a difference between what goes on in a court of law and what goes on in personal relationships. And you never have the right to take the law into your own hands. Never. That is anarchy, isn't it? And we rightly condemn it when we see it in the world. People must be brought to justice wherever they can. And that justice must be perfectly just. But there's a difference when we come to personal relationships. And that is what the Apostle is speaking about here. So no eye for eye and tooth for tooth when it comes to our personal relationships. But you see, if we do live the way that the Apostle says here, if we never pay back evil for evil, we find that that creates a most attractive life. When unbelievers see someone behaving like this, they sit up, they look, they think, they even ask questions. Why are you like that? Why are you not vindictive? Why, do you want, why don't you want to see that other person suffer in the way they made you suffer? And we're able to say, we have a saviour who has given his life for us. We know our own sins and we will not repay evil for evil. Stephen, we read of Stephen in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 7, didn't we? Stephen's reaction to being stoned to death was this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Far from wishing evil upon the people who were stoning him to death, further from picking up those stones and trying to throw them back at them, he actually asked for their forgiveness. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And there was one man standing there holding the coats, Saul of Tarsus, very man who wrote this. And he saw that. I wonder. Later on, the Lord, when he appears to Saul, 
on the road to Damascus, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. What did he mean by that? Well, I don't know really, but I wonder, did he mean your conscience is being pricked? There is something that keeps on and on at you. You're pushing against it, Saul. Stop. And I just wonder whether part of that conscience was hearing what Stephen said. How could this man die like that with so much hatred and anger against him and yet he seemed to have none towards those who were putting him to death? What about Joseph in the Old Testament when his brothers came to him after the death of their father, of course, because the brothers thought that Joseph was simply biding his time. You know what I said about sometimes you can wait a long time? Well, maybe the brothers who had treated Joseph so badly, who had sold him into slavery and pretended that he was dead, those brothers had a conscience about that, didn't they? And they wondered if maybe now that their father was dead, maybe now was the time that Joseph was going to repay them for all the evil that they did. But listen to this, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. By the way, I don't think he did. I think they're making this up. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. So much for men not crying, by the way. Joseph was often in tears. And there's no greater man than he is. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He didn't repay evil for evil, did he? But all of these examples pale into insignificance compared to our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who was more badly treated than our Saviour. But when he was reviled, says Peter, he reviled not again. He did not retaliate. He could have done, but he didn't. He rather blessed those and said himself on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Peter tells us that this is the way of blessing. If we are to seek a blessing of God, then we must not repay anyone evil for evil, but rather we are to repay them with blessing. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Never pay back evil for evil, is what we're being told here. No wonder we need much grace and mercy. No wonder we need to keep our minds fixed on the Lord in order to live like this.
because instinctively we behave differently. But then we go on and the apostle tells us that we are to think carefully before we act wisely and well. The NIV in verse 17 says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. In other words, take careful thought to do what is right and good and honourable in the sight of all. Once again, as we've seen often in this chapter, the emphasis is on the way that we think. We must constantly remember that. Again, this is where the Christian must live countercultural. It's true, isn't it? That in our culture, far more emphasis is laid on the way that we feel than the way that we think. And so if you feel offended, somebody has offended you. Even if that person didn't intend to offend you, you've been offended. Therefore, they've offended you and you felt it. And very often people are encouraged to open up and share their feelings because we're living in a culture that is feeling-oriented. But the Bible is not. It's not to say that feelings aren't important. Of course they are. But the Word of God teaches us that our feelings can be controlled by our thinking. And so the emphasis is always on the way that we think. And once again, we're not to act in the way that perhaps the world does often. We mustn't act rashly or impetuously. We're not to give a quick, thoughtless reaction to something or someone. Now again, there's, there's something about personality here, isn't it? Some of us are very quick. Some of us are very quick to react. Some of us have got a short fuse. Part of that is to do with personality. You need to know yourself in these matters, don't you? Some people are generally by nature quite calm and quiet and, and not quick. Well, whatever you are, you need to know that. But whoever and whatever type you are, you need to make sure that you think carefully before you react. We are to be thinking people. Our actions are to be considered and careful. What is the right thing to do in this situation, we should think to ourselves. What is the honourable thing to do? What is the good thing to do here? Those are the important things that we should be thinking through. We should always be concerned to do what is right before the Lord, first of all. But also, it's very important to be seen to be doing the right thing before people. You see, people in the world, we must never assume that people in the world do not recognize the difference between right and wrong. They do. There is within the human heart, there is a conscience that God has put there. And sometimes that conscience condemns, other times that conscience commends. And so we know the difference, and people in the world know the difference between what is right behavior and what is wrong behavior. And when they look at a Christian, they will know what is right and what is wrong. And so that means that we should always seek to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before other people. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Not just brothers and sisters in the church, but everybody. Your neighbours who may not be Christian. Your work colleagues who may not be Christian. 
your school friends who may not be Christian. You must do what is right in their eyes as well as in the eyes. That doesn't mean that you're to do what they think you should do, but it's to recognize that there is a right way of behaving and people in the world know what that right way is and they expect to see it in you. In 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 22, there is a verse that, uh, that used to be quoted quite a lot amongst Christians because in the authorised version it says, abstain from all appearance of evil. And very often, older people in the church would, would say that to young people, and understandably so. They would, say, they would say to us as young people, make sure that you avoid all appearance of evil. What they meant, of course, is you might not be doing anything wrong, but if it looks like you are, then you're doing the wrong thing. So be careful that you avoid all appearance of evil. <clears throat> now, the problem is that verse doesn't actually mean that at all. And the later translation of the Bible, and of course some of us very sort of wise beyond our ears and cheeky used to say, it doesn't mean that. It simply means you've got to avoid all types of evil probably amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? But here, it does mean that. You see, this is the verse. This is the verse that the older people perhaps should have been quoting to us. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Oh yeah, you must not just do what is right before the Lord and what you know to be right, but do other people see you doing the right thing? Your witness in the world is really important. So, for instance, we have the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he has been entrusted with a lot of money. A lot of money. Now, you know very well that the world is always watching the way we handle money. You also know that there have been all sorts of scandals in the church church generally I'm speaking, not in this particular church, but in the church generally to do with money matters and how easy it is for people within the church to mismanage money either deliberately or by accident. So isn't it refreshing to find the Apostle Paul with this huge amount of money being really careful with it? 2 Corinthians chapter 8 Verse 16, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. What an example to us, to be careful. You see, Paul did everything he could. He made sure that there were respected people, representatives of the churches, who were accompanying him. He wasn't on his own. He didn't have that money bag on his person. So that someone could say, Paul, I think you've been putting your hand in there. No. They made sure that they were doing what is right. They even took pains to do what is right in the eyes of 
the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. You heard about Daniel this morning, didn't you? Well, not Daniel, you heard about his friends this morning. But in, in the book of Daniel, you remember that when Darius the king came to the throne, there were wicked men who had it in for Daniel and wanted to destroy him. But they could find nothing, nothing in his life that they could accuse him of. In fact, they had to find something that was to do with the worship of his God. Because in all other areas, Daniel was upright in all that he did. Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. But what do we read of the Lord Jesus? They said, he does all things well. All things well. So we must be those men and women who have a good reputation with outsiders. Not only elders of the church, but everyone must have a good reputation with outsiders. We must make sure that we make the teaching of our Lord and Saviour attractive. And that means to think carefully about the way that we act and to act wisely. And the Apostle goes on finally in verse 18 to say that we must be at pains then to live peaceably with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be at pains to live peaceably with everyone. In all our dealings with others, both inside and outside the church, we're to seek to live at peace with other people. Not a surprise, is it? Our master is called the Prince of Peace. Our God is the God of Peace. So it's no surprise then that we, as his children, should live peaceable lives. That our Lord Jesus should say in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There mustn't be any unnecessary friction. No disputes for the sake of disputes. We'll be prepared to let things go. How hard that is, isn't it? How easy it is to, to cause friction and difficulties and to start a dispute. Some people seem pathologically inclined to that. But we mustn't. We must be prepared to just let things go. Determine things that are really important. Concentrate on them. We must go the extra mile. We must turn the other cheek. If it is possible, we must live at peace with everyone. One of the great examples is Abraham. You remember that there was a time when Abraham and his nephew Lot were living together. They were both herdsmen and they had huge flocks and herds. And it became obvious that the, that the land could not sustain all of them. And actually disputes were starting to, to occur between the herdsmen of Abraham and of Lot. Listen to the wise words of Abraham in Genesis 13 and verse 8. Genesis 13 verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. That's not a bad verse to tuck away somewhere in your mind. Keep that verse. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. 
so you know the, the outcome of that he gave Lot the choice and Lot chose the most beautiful area and left Abraham with the worst land but God promised that he would bless him and he did some people love a quarrel don't they be careful if that's you seek peace and pursue it rather be wronged than commit a wrong that should be our aim in life shouldn't it in the home between a husband and a wife between parent and child between a brother and a sister it should be the case in the workplace between employer and employee between workers and their colleagues it should be the case between neighbours and citizens and their governments what a difference that makes it's noticed if we seek to live at peace with everyone but before we leave this text we need to recognize that there are limits to peacemaking and to peacekeeping there's a limit you may not be able to live in peace so the apostle says if it is possible if it is possible live in peace with everyone in other words it may not be possible why may it not be possible well simply because there's something that is more important than peace and that is truth and holiness those two things are more important than peace James tells us that in James chapter 3 verse 17 but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving see the order there pure then peace loving that means that sometimes it will not be possible to live at peace because there must always be purity and holiness first and so you see in family life the Lord Jesus said that it's not always possible to live in peace Jesus said that you will find friction and disruption simply because you are a Christian and other members of your family are not and as far as you try to live in peace you might not be able to because they're living a different life to you and your very your Christianity will in itself bring division as the Lord said in, in Matthew 10 I came not to bring peace but a sword then he said family members will be against one another and so often in, in the family where there's someone who's a Christian and others who are not Christians you hear things said don't you you love that church more than you love me that's difficult isn't it don't go to today don't go to church today stay with me Oh, I've, I've booked a table for us in the restaurant oh yes we need to be there at 12 so you won't be able to go to church today you don't really need to go to the prayer meeting every week do you what about spending some time with me or other areas of life it's not really cheating to do that why do you insist on being so honest everyone does it why can't we and you see immediately you can't live at peace where there is that difference fundamentally between the believer and the unbeliever it may not always be possible 
But as far as it is possible, you make sure that you strive for peace. The other reason that Paul gives is that it is only as far as it depends on you. In other words, other people may make this impossible. As far as it lies within you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. But there may be others who are intent on disruption and discord, and you don't have any control over that. But you must not be the cause of the friction. You must do all that you can to live at peace. Now why is all this so important? It's because it demonstrates that the Christian life is so different and other people can see that. It it makes the Christian life visible so that others can see and understand. Just as Stephen's words and actions when he was dying made a deep impression on Saul of Tarsus, so your words and your actions will be like salt and light to those around you, in your family, in your work, in your school, in your college, in a care home, and in the neighborhood. Others will be watching, and as they watch, They should see that we have received such mercy from God that we seek to live at peace with everyone. I want to end with a a hymn, no longer in any hymn book. It was written by a very young Richard Buse in 1964. And I think it is just as, as relevant today as it ever was. Though the world has forsaken God, treads a different path, lives a different way, I walk the road that the Saviour trod, that all may know I live under Jesus' way. They are watching you, marking all you do, hearing the things you say. Let them see the Saviour as he shines in you, let his power control you every day. Men will look at the life I lead, see the things I take and the things I love. They judge my Lord by my every deed. Lord, set my affection on things above. When assailed in temptation's hour by besetting sins by the the love of man, then I can know Jesus' mighty power and become like him in his perfect plan. Here on earth people walk in night, With no light to guide, they are dead in sin. I know the Lord who can give them light. I live, yet not I, but Christ within. They are watching you, marking all you do, hearing the things you say. Let them see the Saviour as he shines in you. Let his power control you every day. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would be impressed upon our minds, that our thinking might be affected by the light of your word. We pray that it might go to our hearts and affect the things that we love and the things that we hate. We pray that it might be seen in practice in our lives. Help us, O Lord, for none of this is possible without your grace. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.